0: to the Bible teachers, featuring sermons from around Australia, and here is today's presenter, Pastor Ashley Smith.
1: Good morning everybody, morning church. It's wonderful to be here this morning with you all. Um, At this very point in time, um, Rosie, my wife's actually preaching in Lismore Church, so there we go, it's her first sermon. Um, So how about I just have a prayer before we open today's word, and I'll pray for her as well. Father in heaven, I just want to thank you so much for your faithfulness and that we can study your word here this morning. Father, I pray that as we do so that you may descend and be with us as you already have this morning. Father, I also pray for Rosie that you be with her and speak through her as well as she communicates to you this morning. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, today's message um, I've entitled, well, we're going through our series, first of all, which is Attracted to Jesus. And throughout the rest of this year, we're going to be focusing on what it actually means to be attracted to Jesus. And the messages in which we'll be looking at are very intentional, focused messages. Now, today's message I've entitled, When God Came Down. And when you looked at that little video just before, you would have seen what that really is. We're looking at... The Exodus account when God made a covenant with his people. But I want to share a quick story with you before I start this morning. I was three or four years old, so I don't really remember this story at all. It's just what's been shared with me. Now, my dad, my mom, and my sister, and myself well, it wasn't really my sister and my decision to, to go on a holiday, but it was our parents' decision, and they decided to go on a holiday to the Gold Coast and were staying on a houseboat for a week. Now, as a young person, things always look a lot bigger than what they actually are. And when mum and dad told me that we were staying on a houseboat for a week, I was actually thinking that it was a a boat that was as big as our house that floated on the water. Um, That was just my imagination, and as a child's imagination, it just ran rampant, and I was so excited with anticipation that we're going to be staying on this house that floats on the water for a week. We turn up to the, or before we turn up, we pack the Volvo full of, you know, our luggage and food and everything, and we hit the road. We turn up to the Gold Coast, and we park out the front of the wharf that leads out in, in, into the, the, the canals in the Gold Coast. And we park the car, and we get the stuff out. Well, Mom and Dad got the stuff out, and, you know, I, I don't remember what happened, but I, I just remember what they shared with me. As they're getting the stuff out of the car, the luggage, you know, I'm off up the wharf. And all the boats are are, are docked along the side of the wharf and I'm just running up the wharf. And the sound of my feet on the, um, the wooden planks is echoing with the water underneath and I'm running up and I'm just loving it. I'm excited. The houseboat, the houseboat. But the boats weren't as big as what I thought. But it was still exciting and, you know, the sun was beaming and and I was excited and I was going to get to the houseboat first. I don't know what it was, but you've probably heard the saying, curiosity killed the cat. And I, I thought, well, what does it look like over the edge of the wharf? So I walked over to the edge of the wharf and I looked into the water and before I knew it, I was in the water. Three years old, four years old, couldn't swim. Parents were still probably getting the luggage out of the back of the car. They were too far back to do anything. I was a goner. And the thing is, I couldn't swim. And I was sinking to the bottom, bottom of the ocean there like a rock. And the thing is, by the time that my parents got there, it would have been too late. I couldn't save myself, and they couldn't save me. I was completely helpless. But the beautiful thing of this story is that there was a man who was a couple of meters back who was dressed in a suit, was on a wharf. He reaches in and he grabs me by the scruff of my shirt and pulls me up and puts me back on the wharf. And he waits for my parents who were just frantically just running down the wharf He waits for them to get there and he just keeps walking. And he doesn't say a word to them. He just kept walking. Now, it's another story for another day. I believe that was an angel. But the beautiful thing of this story and the lesson that I really want you to remember is that he came down and reached in when I couldn't save myself. And the whole biblical story is just this. God came down and God reached down because we couldn't go up because we wouldn't go up. And the history of the Israelites is a history of a nation. God's special chosen people who were chosen to be a blessing to the world. They were chosen and set apart to declare him to everyone around. They were in slavery in Egypt. And the book of Exodus pinpoints this so clearly. They were in slavery, with the most oppressive nation that has probably ever been. And they can't save themselves. Because not only is Egypt oppressive, but Egypt is also the most powerful nation that there is. And they're stuck. For 400 years, they're stuck. They know what it's like to be oppressed. They know what it's like to be slaves. And this is their life, and this is their lot. But then God comes through miraculously, and he delivers them. And he brings them out of Egypt, the most powerful nation. He brings them to the edges of the Red Sea. He even parts the water and they pass through. And he brings them to this place called Mount Sinai. Miraculous, isn't it? Miraculous. The first half, as you looked in the video of Exodus, is looking at God's saving power. The second half is looking at his covenant with his people. You know, there's a difference between a covenant and a contract. You know, I went into Telstra a number of years ago, and I signed on the dotted line for a phone. That's a contract. A covenant is different. A contract basically, I'll show you on the screen here, a contract says, this is yours and this is mine. A contract has to do with objects, it has to do with possessions, it has to do with material things, and a contract is always about me profiting and me getting something. And by the way, contracts are temporary. Because after two years, I could say goodbye to Telstra. Okay, Telstra gets my money, and I get the phone. They get something from me, and I get something from them. When God enters into a covenant with his people, is he entering into a contract with them? Where he gets something from them, and they get something from him. Is that what God does? That's not what God's covenants are about. God's covenants are different. And on the screen just up here, you see that a covenant is this. I am yours and you are mine. There's a difference between a covenant and a contract. And the difference is this. While a contract looks at um, possessions and, 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 and profit, a covenant looks at the person. And when God entered into a covenant with the children of Israel... As I stood here on the 1st of May and Rosie stood just here, we entered into a covenant. Because I tell you something this morning, my contract with Telstra is very different to the covenant that I made with Rosie. I'm not even going to put them on equal playing fields here, they're completely different. A covenant is this I stood here and said, Yes, Rosie, I am yours and you are mine. And she said, Ashley, I am yours. And you are mine. I am giving myself to you. A contract is getting. A covenant is giving. And God enters into a covenant with the children of Israel. And this is so powerful. God had saved them from slavery. He had saved them from bondage. And he brings them to this mountain. Now many, many people think that when God brings them to the mountain and he gives them the law and the requirements, that God saves them from slavery and then puts them back into slavery again is that what the law is? Is the law that was given at Mount Sinai meant to put them back into bondage again? No. It was meant to give them freedom. Actually, the law was a demonstration of God's spiritual salvation. The Exodus was a demonstration of God's physical salvation. And what I want to show you today is that there are, Well, actually, I'll give you an illustration. Let's say that you make a doctor's appointment and you ring up the receptionist and you make a doctor's appointment. This is a contract. So you say, you know, I'd like to book an appointment for the the 15th of January at 9 o'clock and you pencil it in. And then you go throughout your day and you're busy and you're busy and you forget about the appointment that you made. Now, does a doctor stop and cancel all of his appointments because you haven't turned up? Does the doctor lay awake at night thinking, oh, Ashley just didn't turn up to the doctor's surgery today. I just can't sleep. Is that what he does? No, he just gets on with it. He he forgets about you. He doesn't even remember you. And next time that you make an appointment, it's probably less likely you're going to get into that doctor's surgery because you're just not showing up. A covenant is different. A covenant's like this. As a parent, you prepare a meal for your children or one of your children. And your, your child is supposed to come home at 6 o'clock so you can share that meal with them. And you're sitting at the table and the, and the food's out on the table and you're watching the clock and it goes from 6 to 10 past 6 to half past 6 to 10 to 7, 7 o'clock and they're still not home. Does the parent then go, Oh well, I've done my obligation, I cooked dinner, they didn't show up, I can go to bed now. Do they forget? No, no, no. That's where the parent's obligation begins. The difference between a contract and a covenant is that when the obligation's over, the obligation's over. The covenant is when something's gone wrong, it just begins. You know, when you read the Isaiah, God says, you know, that he's inscribed us on the palms of his hands. God's covenants are far more reaching than the covenants that we make here on earth and the contracts that we make. There are two conditions for covenant. The first one is relationship. Open with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19 and verse 4. There's two conditions to covenant. In all the texts in the Old Testament, this is probably my favorite text. And that's a pretty broad statement. Because this text just here is a text that demonstrates covenant, the covenant language with God. I am your God and you are my people. Now, you've got to see here that God initiates the covenant. So any single attempt for the Israelites to fulfill the covenant in their own strength is void because God's already initiated the covenant. God's process of saving people has never changed. There's not going to be two divisions in heaven where one side of heaven says, we worked really hard to keep the law of God and therefore we'll save through our own merits. And then there's another side in heaven that says, you know, we relied on the blood sacrifice of Jesus. There's not two divisions. God initiates. God comes down because we can never go up. And God brings the children of Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea. He redeems them. And look at what he says to them in verse 4. He says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians, the most powerful nation on earth, how I subdued them. And how I bore you on eagles' wings and did what? And brought you to myself. Isn't that beautiful? God saves you from oppression. He saves you from slavery. And by the way, church, we are all slaves to sin. And none of us here in this building today can ever save ourselves through our own strength. We are drowning. We are sinking. We are crumbling down under the weight and the pressures of sin. We cannot do it. But he says how I bore you from the Egyptians, how I pushed away the oppressing power and I bore you on eagle's wings. I sustained you and I have brought you with the intended purpose to bring you to who? Covenant is relationship. God saved Israel that Israel may know him. I am yours, Israel, and you are mine. But there's a second condition of covenant, and that's expectation. Verse 5 and 6 says this, Now therefore, because I've saved you, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my what? My covenant. Then you shall be a very special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. When God saves his people, when God saves you, when God reaches out and touches you, does he save you so you can then live for yourself? Are God's covenants that he makes with us is a covenant just between me and God? Is it like me saying this, this is my relationship with God and you guys stay back there? I'm keeping God to myself. Is that what God intended for his covenant with the children of Israel? No, 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 no. God says, you shall be a kingdom of priests. What does a priest do? A priest stands before God and the people to represent God to the people. So what God does with Abraham is he calls Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees and he says, Abraham, I'm going to choose you to represent me to the nations. Then he calls a select group of people, the, um, the descendants of Abraham through, you know, Isaac and Jacob, etc., etc. Here they have the nation of Israel, and they are drawn out from the nations to represent God to the nations, because God's ultimate purpose has always been to save humanity, and God uses people to be His representatives so others can come into a saving relationship with Him. So, God calls Israel out of Egypt. He saves them from Egypt. He brings them into this covenant experience. He says, I have saved you, Israel, with the express purpose number one, that you're saved, but number two, that others can be saved through your ministry for me. God's covenants are never self centered. And our relationship with God should never be self centered. God's covenants always reach out contracts always reach in what do i get for myself god's covenants are what can i give to others does that make sense what are the two conditions of covenant relationship and expectation now i want to ask you a question here this morning what was israel's response to this covenant did they say yes or did they say no I said, yes. I mean, wouldn't you say yes too? You had just been saved from Egypt. You had just been saved from slavery, years and years of hard labor where you couldn't even worship God. And God had delivered you so miraculously and he brought you to this place and he said, I want to enter into a relationship with you. Would you say no? It wouldn't make sense if you said no. And I want to invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 24. We're going, to see, um, we're going to see what Israel says and what Moses does. Exodus 24 and verse 7. The scripture reads this. It says, Then he took the book of the covenant. Now, who's the he here in the text? You jump up the previous verse and it's actually Moses. Moses takes the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. Now, the book of the covenant was the terms of the covenant. This is the covenant that God has entered into with his people. And they said, the people said, the Israelites said, now I want you to listen to this, all that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. Was that a good decision or a bad decision? And be careful with what you say or think there. It was a good decision. It was a good decision. Now, let me ask you a question. You have the old covenant, you have the new covenant. What's the difference? Why did we need a new covenant? (laughs) I'm going to give you a bit of insights here that I've found from Scripture. Did God give a faulty covenant? Did God come down to the Israelites and say, I'm going to give you a covenant that's going to make you legalists? Does God give covenants that tend towards legalism? No, no, no. Does God change? Does God say, okay, this is the way in which you're saved here, and this is the way in which you're saved here? No, no, no. It's always the blood of Jesus, and it will always be the blood of Jesus. The issue with this and their response wasn't with their response, but it was with their motives. Because they tried to do what? They tried to fulfill the covenant themselves. The problem wasn't with the covenant. The problem was with the people Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8 and have a look what it says. Now, Hebrews is actually a New Testament book. It sounds like an Old Testament book, but it's a New Testament book towards the back of the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 7, say amen when you've got there. In chapter 8 and verse 7, the scripture reads this. It says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Okay, so there was a fault with the first covenant. In verse 8 it says, Because finding fault with the covenant? With them. He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The problem with the first covenant wasn't with the covenant itself. The problem with the first covenant was the problem with the people And I don't know about you, but I definitely know about me. My promises and my resolutions to God are like ropes of sand. I say to God, yes, I'm going to be more faithful next time. Oh, yes, God, I'm sorry for doing this. And I make a pledge, I make a promise, I make a commitment, but it's like a rope of sand that you just can't climb. It slips through your fingers. Has anyone else experienced that? That's why we can't fulfill the covenant. But they tried and they tried and they tried and and they failed and they failed and they failed. But what Moses does back in the book of Exodus is I want to show you something quite powerful. Back in Exodus 24 in verse 7, the people say, everything that you have said, we would do. And in verse 8, something that's a bit weird. And there's a reason why we don't do this in our worship service each and every day. It says, And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the who... Now, come down the front and let me sprinkle some blood on you. You know, I would never be preaching here again. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, now listen to these words. This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. It's powerful, powerful. He goes to the people and he sprinkles the blood on them and he sprinkles the blood on the covenant. Why Did blood need to be shed? When the blood was shed, the people said, yes, we would do. Just remember, God is standing here saying, I will be your God, you will be my people. We will be your people and you will be our God. And basically, they've entered into this covenant, this commitment to one another, and then an animal's life was slain and the blood was caught. In other words, what they were saying is, if we are unfaithful to the covenant, may this happen to me. Does that make sense? It's the term of the covenant. And then the blood is sprinkled on the the book of the covenant, and the blood is sprinkled on them. It's on them. It's on their clothes. It's probably on their clothes for a number of days. They've entered into this solemn covenant, hey? Powerful commitment. Let me ask you a question. How long did it take for them to break the covenant? Have you ever been to a wedding and they make the covenant decision? And then at least 40 days later, there's an affair. This was what happened. God has made the covenant. They said yes to the covenant. The covenant's committed. And then you jump with me to Exodus chapter 32, just a number of chapters. Moses, now I want you to focus on this. Moses goes up to the mountain, Mount Sinai, because that's where God is at the moment. And the people won't go up, not just because they won't go up, because they can't go up. And Moses goes up the mountain to get the covenant. The Ten Commandments, the terms of the covenant, it's like the marriage certificate is still coming in the mail. And by the way, when Rosie got her marriage certificate, they spelled her name wrong. So it actually came longer than what it should have. So Moses goes up to get the marriage certificate. And the children of Israel are like, oh man, God's taking a long time. Aaron. And in verse 1, they said, Aaron, come make for us gods that shall go before us For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Moses has gone to get the marriage certificate, and the people at the bottom of Mount Sinai are committing spiritual adultery against God a spit in the face. God had saved them, God had redeemed them, God had delivered them. We don't know that God anymore. Is that serious? Come down to verse 4. And he received the gold from their hand. This is Aaron. And he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said, now, I want you to focus on this because this is covenant language. This isn't just casual words that they've chosen here, but this is a direct, direct rebellion. This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. This is your God, and these are your people. This is your God. It's a spit in the face. Have they broken the covenant, church? How long has it taken before they broke the covenant? At least 40 days, probably less. They broke the covenant, and here they are dancing around this object that they have made with their own hands, and they're worshipping it, and they're saying, this is inanimate object has delivered us from egypt while they still have the blood of the covenant promise probably still on their clothes they are so soon to forget and it's easy to point fingers isn't it church to say they messed up they did it wrong they rebelled but when i think about my life what's my track record like how many times have i broken god's covenant And Moses comes down the mountain with the marriage certificate and he throws it on the ground because he's demonstrating that they have broken the covenant. And as God stood there and as they stood there and they promised faithfulness to each other, if one of them broke the covenant, what was the result? Death, that animal, the blood that was sprinkled. May this happen to me if I break the covenant. Could God just then say, well, I'm a gracious, merciful, forgiving God, abounding in mercy and truth. Let's just sweep this misdemeanor in the corner here, and we'll just forget it even happened. Could God do that? No. Why? Yes, God is fully merciful, but God is also fully just. And God must deal with sin in a way that perfectly satisfies himself. We're going to look at that more next week when we look at the atonement. But I invite you to to, to look with me into the very heart of God in Exodus chapter 34 because this is the central focus point. In Exodus 34, thanks so much, Kyle, for reading these texts for us. Moses goes up the mountain to God. And I want to show you what God does. Oh, I love this. God descends upon the mountain, and Moses says, Show me your glory. Glory was synonymous for character. And character is God's name. It's who God is. And in verse 5, it says, The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. He's proclaiming his character. He's proclaiming who he is. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and proclaimed, what did God do in the midst of Israel 's rebellion? He proclaims His name. Israel has declared who they are rebellious, iniquitous. God says, "I am this." When we make false promises to God, God declares who He is, that He is faithful and that He is trustworthy. Up on the screen, I 've got this slide, and I want to show you um, I want to show you that god 's name is God's character. God mentions a number of things in these texts just here. He says that He is merciful. So God is saying, while Israel is rebellious, I am merciful, full of grace and favor. While Israel is so rebellious, I am slow to anger. And that word in the Hebrew literally means long nose. God has a long nose. He has a long, long patience threshold. I'm glad for that. His goodness, and the word here for goodness is chesed in the Hebrew. Chesed. And it means covenant love. Isn't that beautiful? When Israel forgot the covenant, did God ever forget the covenant? No. His goodness. And that word, remember it says he's abounding in goodness. In other words, there's no limit to the goodness of him who is faithful. It's like if you had a big bucket and you're drawing up God's goodness, you would never hit the bottom. You just keep going and keep going and keep going. That's the lengths to God's goodness, and that's what he's declaring here. He's full of truth, which means he's faithful and he's stable. There is stability in God's name, and you can always depend upon him. Mercy, he mentions Chesed again because he wants them to understand he's the covenant-keeping God. He says he's keeping mercy with thousands, but literally in the Hebrew it means he's keeping mercy or chesed to the thousandth generation. It's a very deep bucket, isn't it? Very, very deep. And then he says forgiveness, and he mentions forgiveness here of all sins, even sins which weren't even covered in the sanctuary service. Wow. But then he also says he visits iniquity. In other words, God deals with sin. God declares his name as a name that's fully merciful, but fully just. Could God just then wipe his hands and say, you know what? I've demonstrated who I am. I'm the God of perfect mercy, slow to anger, full of goodness, truth, mercy, faithfulness, forgiveness, and I'm just as well. That demonstration of who I am, that's enough. I've done what I've needed to do. You're now saved. Is that enough? Needs a response. So what does God do? God comes down. Children of Israel, did they hear that? Did they see that? Did they know that at that point? God wanted them to. But how could a holy God live in the midst of a sinful people? What God does is something profound. The sanctuary hadn't been built yet. So guess what God does? In Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8, it says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell amongst them. God comes down because they can't go up. God initiates the covenant because we never could. I was drowning in the water and I couldn't save myself. My parents couldn't save me. Only God could save me. And the same with God's covenants that he makes with you. They couldn't go up the mountain into God's presence. So God said, you know what, I'm going to come down to you and wrap myself in the garb of some material and I'm going to be with you in the midst of sin. Because covenant was always relationship and God has always wanted to be with his people. Amen. But the beautiful demonstration of God's covenant isn't just seen here in the sanctuary and the sanctuary services, but the full demonstration of God redeeming and declaring his name is seen in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Open up with me to John chapter 1 and verse 14. John 1, 14. I'm sorry, but I'm just getting into this. It's my second last text. John 1, 14. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell amongst them. What is Jesus? Look at this text. And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld his glory the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. John is intentionally borrowing the language from the book of Exodus. Do you see it? And the word, who's the word? Jesus and God, you read up in verse 1 to 3, and God became flesh. What's that saying? God became man and dwelt. The word there for dwelt in the Greek means tented or tabernacled. So God became man and he tented with us. He sanctuaried with us. Isn't that cool? And it says, and we beheld his glory. God's glory is synonymous with his character, which is his name. Because Moses had just seen the name on the mountain, the children of Israel hadn't seen it. And I mean, this is the powerful reality, church. God had sent message after message after message through the prophets and through the scriptures to his people. They knew that God was faithful, God was just, and God was holy because of the promise that was given. But had they ever seen a life demonstration of it? Never had. The children of Israel never went up the mountain. It was only words that were spoken to them. So what God does is God becomes a man and God dwells with us. And we see his glory. We actually see the character of God. God comes down. And these words here, this verse here is echoing the language of the Exodus. And it's echoing the language of the sanctuary. Because God wants us to know that he initiates his covenants. That he keeps his covenants. He has perfect chesed. And that he has covenantal love which has no lengths. Which has no limits. The bucket is It's full, and it goes right down as far as you can go, and yet there's still infinite depth you can go to. And God is saying, we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. This is the reality of God's declaration in the mountain. It's now become flesh, and it's now tangible, and we can can now see it. But was a demonstration enough? Did Jesus just have to come to Earth and say, "Hey God, God, hey guys, J- Jesus and God love you." Okay, now I can go. They know that I love them. Is that enough? A demonstration isn't enough. But I tell you what, words just aren't enough. I could, you know, I could tell Rosie that I love her, I love her, I love her. But my actions, you know, if they're not right actions, could say differently words can be cheap but I tell you what words made flesh aren't cheap and the word became flesh and we beheld his glory and we saw that he's a covenantal God who keeps his covenant turn with me our last text to Matthew chapter 26 Matthew 26 this text here demonstrates to me that Jesus' life was more than just a demonstration of God's love for us, but Jesus' life was a demonstration of God's saving power to pay the penalty for our sin. And unless Jesus pays the penalty for our sin, you have no salvation, church. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 28, Jesus is in the the, the Last Supper with his disciples and he says these words, and up on the screen, I want you to see the parallels here. He says, For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. On the screen here, you see that Jesus is intentionally taking the same language that Moses quoted when he sprinkled the blood on the book of the covenant. Moses said, This is the blood of the covenant. Jesus says, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins for without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. And I'm going to explain this church when God stood here and said to Israel I am your God and you are my people. And when Israel stood here and says we are your people and you are our God and then Israel spat in the face of God. God couldn't push their sins into a corner and say we're not going to deal with that we'll forget that nothing has ever happened. Jesus has to take the price and pay the penalty for the sins that Israel has committed. That's why he's saying this. Because he's a God of perfect justice. A God of perfect mercy and perfect justice. And his life is given for many as a remission of sin. And the shedding of blood is for the forgiveness of sins. And I want to focus on this point as we close. God comes down because you couldn't go up and because you wouldn't go up. And what Jesus does is this. Jesus is the Word. He is God. By the way, is God faithful to his covenant? Jesus fulfills the covenant and is faithful to the covenant on the side of God. He becomes man. Is Jesus faithful to the covenant as man? Jesus is faithful to the covenant as man. Where you are unfaithful, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. The new covenant is the fulfillment of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection as God and as man. Jesus fulfills your side of the covenant and he wants you to take trust in him. And the difference between the new covenant and the old covenant, the old covenant, the people said yes, the new covenant, God says yes. And when God says yes, nothing else can say no. As we close, I invite you all to stand. I invite you all to stand. I'm going to close differently today. And as we close today, I want you all to close your eyes with every eye closed and every head bowed. I want you to imagine yourself running along that wharf, living your life for yourself, Seeking to save your own soul, you're pursuing, I don't know what it is, security, hope, joy, peace, everything in your own strength. And you're running along and you're enjoying life and everything that life offers. But deep down inside of you, are you happy? I beg to say that you're not. And you're running along and you think that you're experiencing life to its fullest, but really you're experiencing the worst of it. And then you find yourself in a condition where you're sinking, you've fallen in, you're drowning, and you're going down. You can't save yourself, and no one else can save you. There is only one who can save you, and there has only ever been one who can save you. And it's not the person that's standing right there where you are. It's not you. And it's not the person standing right next to you. And it's not the preacher up the front just here. Take them all out of the equation. There is only one person that could ever and will ever save you. And that is Jesus Christ. He has been faithful to the covenant on your side and on his side. Stop trying to do it yourself and trust that his power working through you. If you would like to reach up and take the hand of he who never fails, as every eye is closed and every head is bowed, I invite you to raise your hand. No one knows. No one will see. To take the hand of him who never fails and says, you know what? I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it myself. I want Jesus. And when Jesus comes and when Jesus takes hold of you, I want to let you know that God comes down so you can go up. And when he comes and faith is made sight, you will go up and you will see him in his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Let me pray for you. Father in heaven, I want to thank you so much that you are a covenant-keeping God. When you look at us this morning, you see us as we are, but you still love us all the same. I thank you, Lord, so much that you stood in our place. You took our punishment. You took our shame. You demonstrated your love to us and you actually paid the price to save us from ourselves. We thank you for the new covenant. We thank you for Jesus. And Father, we want to pray in thanks today that you chose to come down from that mountain in heaven and you chose to wrap yourself in a human body and live the life that we never lived so we can experience the life that only comes through you. Father, as we have raised our hands this morning, we pray that you may take hold of us and draw us up from the pit of sin, that we may be brands plucked from the fire and place us on the solid ground that is Jesus Christ our Lord. Watch over us, bless us, lead us, and guide us. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.
2: Stop. Yeah.
0: bring your sorrows and trade them for joy. From the ashes a new life is born. Jesus is calling. Oh come to
1: was just as i am oh come to the altar from hope for eden and divik music and before that you listen to how great thou art with uriel vega coming up next we have are you ready for jesus to come with sandra enterman
2: This program has been brought to you by 3ABN Australia Radio.